the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord, have mercy upon me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Would you make the thoughts of my heart and the words of my mouth pleasing and acceptable in your sight? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, my kids are at an age now where they watch little kid shows. And the thing I can't stand about little kid shows is the songs because they get lodged in your head. And I was going to be a jerk and start singing one of them for you parents out there, but I won't do that. I'll be kind. The thing that I find fun and charming about kid shows is that they're sort of like plot writing for dummies. Instead of just like writing a character who has a desire and then is met with someone trying to thwart that desire, you know, conflict, plot, they're really sort of over the top with stuff. So there's this one show in particular uh, that my daughter watches called Peg Plus Cat. Uh, it's about a girl actually named Peg and her cat. And every, every single episode, instead of embedding in the story the idea that Peg wants something in particular but runs into challenges along the way, they make it explicitly part of the story. And the characters shout together every single time, we've got a big problem. And then they go along, they solve the problem, and they sing the song, 
problem solved. I won't sing it because it'll be stuck in my head for the rest of the night. They have this big problem solved song that they sing. In our gospel text this evening, a pillar of the community seeks out Jesus under the cover of darkness. Nico would be our hero in nearly any other story. He's a good family man, no doubt. He's religious, but not so filled with hubris and fanaticism that he can't go and seek wisdom from this strange rabbi Jesus. He is upstanding in every way. Nico isn't just a good man. He's part of the ruling council. He's a good man who rules over other good men. Now, if we had backed up just a few verses, John in his gospel account, we would see, has just told us that Jesus was in Jerusalem performing many signs and wonders, and many people were believing in his name. But John tells us Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. Nico is a sort of representative of these people. They have faith so far as it goes, but they don't quite get who Jesus is or, for that matter, who they are and what they need. So Nico starts well. He says right off the bat, and in the original text, he sort of says it almost like the way that Yoda talks. He says, we know that from God you have come a teacher. He's emphasizing the fact that we know you're from God because no one could do these signs that you're doing unless you're from God. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus is essentially, you've got a big problem. When Jesus says, very truly, he's highlighting what's about to come. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is really, 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 really important. So listen, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this term born again has been used so much over time that I fear it's lost a lot of its original punch. In our current culture, to be labeled born again is to be a fanatic, right? A Jesus freak. It's often said with an eye roll, no, she's like really Christian. She's like a born again, right? You guys ever heard that? Just me? The phrase born again in the original text also means born from above, and it seems that John has intentionally used this wording to get at the idea that Jesus is essentially telling Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above. Jesus is telling us, we've got a big problem. The problem is twofold. You see, embedded in his line here is an assumption about the telos of all human beings, the goal, the destination, the thing that we all should want, the good life par excellence. And for Jesus, he just assumes it's the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a large doctrine in the Gospels especially, and it encompasses really the entire Christian narrative in the world, in a sense. God created a good and beautiful world, and he placed human beings made in his image in a garden to tend it and to live in communion with him in his kingdom. But we, of course, refuse this and set about making ourselves kings of our own destiny. The consequences of this decision cannot be overstated. In our attempt at being kings of our own kingdoms, we have ripped ourselves out of relationship with God We have ruined relationship with each other. 
Look at the amount of wars, slavery, divorce, abuse, orphans being neglected. And we've made a mess of the created world in the process. We see the material world around us, including other human beings, as nothing more than raw material to be shaped by our will. So when Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God has drawn near, what he's saying is that the renewal, the new creation of all things, has drawn near in his creation. We're in the middle of selling our house and looking for a new one. Imagine that I were to tell you that we stumbled upon a property that's a bit expensive for us, and it's hard to see why because the house is in really bad disrepair. But for some reason, we decided to go look at it. And when we went, I was walking around the property line, and I kicked over a rock, and I happened to notice that there was this enormous cavern of gold and diamonds and oil. What would we do? We would save every penny. We would beg, borrow, and steal to go get that land, right? That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man who has discovered a field with treasure buried in it. And the first part of our problem, I think, is that we live like the kingdom of God is not real. Or if it is, it's not really that valuable. It's not really worth all we've got. In his response to Nicodemus, Jesus assumes, though, that we should all want to see the kingdom of God more than anything else. This is the thing that is driving all of human engines. Deep down, we want to see God. We have a term for that here. We call it being eschatological people. And what we mean by that is that we want to be people whose lives are marked by an overwhelming hope and longing for God to be all in all, for Christ to rule over the world and for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And this brings us to the second part of our problem, and this is like a Bruce Willis in the sixth sense sized problem. The problem is we can't afford the field with oil and gold hidden in it. Not even close. Jesus is talking to a guy who's got it pretty well together, and he doesn't even tell him what he needs to do or stop doing. He only tells him what he needs to become. Born again. Born again from above. How many of you played a very active role in your own conception, gestation, and delivery? You had nothing to do with your physical birth. How could we think we'd be able to affect our second birth from above? John's already told us in his introduction, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. To be born again from above, it's been said, is to receive, not achieve, receive a new origin. Something, obviously, you cannot give to yourself. And with every response, 
Nico reveals himself to be really one of us. And also, I think, a potential good friend for Neil deGrasse Tyson, because everything is looked at from a human perspective for Nicodemus. Literally, every time this man opens his mouth, he says, how can? How can? How can? He wants to know, from a human perspective, how can this be true? How can it really happen? He's unable to perceive that a new birth from above is just that. It's from above. It's from God. And so in the words of Jesus, those who want to enter the kingdom of heaven must be born of... Wait, what? Water? Water and spirit? Is he saying what I think he's saying? If you'll recall last week, I said one of the key things that the devil was trying to get Jesus to doubt was the pronouncement of his sonship in the baptismal waters. And here, Jesus is declaring that only those who enter the bath of baptism will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, at this point, those of you who have been in church very long are starting to hear little alarm bells. Aren't you? Ding, ding, ding. There's an intruder. After all, we just heard Romans 4, which is basically Paul screaming at the top of his lungs, righteousness is given as a gift to those who have faith. That's it. Now, a lot of money has been made by those who try to pit Paul against Jesus over the years. But look, Jesus himself says at the end of our gospel lesson that eternal life comes as a gift to those who believe So what does it mean that the new birth comes only through water and and spirit, and how is that not works righteousness? I think most of us who were raised in the church, especially the evangelical church, have lived almost exclusively in a John 3.16, Romans 4, Acts 16.31 world. Believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. It's the best news in the world, and it's completely true. And the New Testament presents a fuller message. The injunction to the baptismal font is not a contradiction to the gift of righteousness through faith. Consider. In Romans 6, Paul continues his discussion about how human beings are put back into right relationship with God, and he says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In Mark 16, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we're told that we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body and we were all given one spirit to drink. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, 
And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. In his letter to Titus, Paul says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is a trustworthy saying, he says. Peter, in his first epistle, puts it the strongest. He hearkens back to the flood in the days of Noah and tells his readers that it's a symbol of the waters of baptism, quote, baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If scripture doesn't really do it for you and you're more of a reformational type, Martin Luther, that great defender of faith alone through grace alone in Christ alone, taught this about baptism, quote, this is the simplest way to put it. The power, effect, benefit, fruit, and purpose of baptism is that it saves. Or to circle back around to the words of Jesus himself in our passage, seriously, 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 listen to what I'm about to tell you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. So how is this not a contradiction of Romans 4? How is this not works righteousness? It all hinges on what you think baptism is. Now all metaphors break down at some point, but it's sort of like that property I found with all the gold and oil under the front lawn. I can believe all that I want that it exists, but if I don't attach myself to the property, it's going to do me no good, because it's not mine. Baptism can't be a good work, because baptism isn't a thing that any of us can do. Who here would baptize themselves? None of us. It's a gift of God deposited with the church, which is the body of Christ. And baptism is always, always, always God doing the work. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with any of the parents that are bringing their children, if it's children. It is all about God and the person going into the bath. As Peter says so clearly, baptism now saves you. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. It is applying Christ's work to your life. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel have continued to gripe and moan against God. It's like a motif in the Pentateuch, if you haven't read it lately. And as a result, at one point, poisonous snakes come into the midst of the camp, threatening to extinguish the entire people. But God tells Moses to make a snake and put it up on a pole where the people can see it, and to tell the people that anyone who is bitten can turn and look at the snake, and they will be healed. How insane would it have been to trust in your heart that this snake bite that is killing you would go away if you would just turn and look at the snake, but eh, I'm just going to believe. I'm not actually going to do it. That's That's crazy. Jesus tells Nicodemus that just so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a tree, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. John 3.16 is a verse that if you're even just American, 
you have heard so many times. And this is really getting at the heart, I think, of what baptism really is, because it is always, always, always Jesus who saves by his perfect sacrifice and his powerful resurrection. But here's the thing. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave them a way out from under punishment. That's not the gift. Salvation is not avoiding hell or punishment. It is being brought into union with Christ. Christ himself is the gift of God. And baptism as a work of God applies the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ to the person being washed. That's what the fuller message of the New Testament is. That is what Christ is telling Nicodemus. I'll leave you with these words from the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. That's what baptism is. It's staking claim on the promises of God that he will be faithful. He who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.